0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get more from Buck by following him on social media at Buck Sexton on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.
1: Welcome, friends. Great to have you here with me on the Buck Sexton Show. I am very concerned, as you know, about this trend of censorship that's happening all across social media. Because you have to remember, they're not going to be judicious in the application of this. They're not going to say, "Okay, only the really bad people on the right. And there are certainly some only those people are going to be punished. No, there's going to be mass purges, not only of individuals, but also of ideas. In some cases, ideas that are really central policy debates. We should have seen this coming. Because it wasn't the election. You have to remember, it wasn't the election that was the original reason for online censorship. It was COVID-19 lockdowns and mask effectiveness. Right? And that, that's a different thing, isn't it, than just saying anything outright about masks. If you even question the effectiveness of them, something that in the beginning of 2020, as you've no doubt heard me talk about many times, Dr. Fauci suggested there was essentially no effectiveness. That was what Fauci said. They can pretend he didn't. But now if you even question it, you are deplatformed, you're attacked, you are banned, you're censored. And we have been led to believe through four years that the real threat of authoritarianism and the heart of authoritarianism is the concept of you must obey. It is not about your consent. You must obey And there are there are threats. There is eventually the threat of force attached to this. But even in the earlier stages, it's obey or you can't uh, speak out without fear of being censored by platforms. Obey or maybe you can't even conduct your business anymore. You'll be boycotted. Uh, Obey or you won't be able to use banking services. You'll be kicked out of essential parts of day-to-day life until you submit, you must submit or else we've been told for four years that the big threat of this came from Donald Trump and the right when all along, and, and there's really no serious disagreement about this all along. There has been a complete opposition to this president from the media, from Silicon Valley and from much of corporate America. Look at what happened during the BLM riots, and protests. There were lawful BLM protests to be sure, but there were also a lot of riots, a lot of destruction of property, a lot of assaults on police. Corporate America was almost uniformly supportive of those protests. Uh, Corporate America was sending them money and there was no condemnation of political violence or riots. Social media allows you to say things like, racist cops murdered this person and then when we find out more facts and we know that it's not actually not a murder and it was not motivated by racism based on anything that we know there's no fact check run on that there's no additional context that's put out there so we know that there is a a capricious application of the the terms of service whether it's about covid lockdowns or blm and political violence they're playing games folks they're not applying these standards honestly. In fact, they're weaponizing the standards against one side. Where does the greatest concern of authoritarianism come from? Look, show me a regime around the world, either today or, or in history, that was truly an authoritarian state. And ask yourself this question. Was the press, such as it was, in complete opposition to the ruling party or totally doing the bidding of the ruling party. And you'll come to a very straightforward conclusion. Now, there may be some opposition papers here and there, a little bit, there may be, but do you ever have the entirety of the corporate establishment uh, and and the information establishment and the intellectual class, so to speak, completely united against a truly authoritarian regime? No, because you couldn't have, Uh, You couldn't have such a a governing uh, a governing system. You couldn't have somebody in total control with so many powerful forces arrayed against them. I bring this up because my concern now is that we're heading toward what is supposed to be a benevolent authoritarianism of the left and the Democrat Party. But will end up just being the authoritarianism. That's what we're actually going to get. They think it's for our own good. We have to censor bad ideas. Got to keep you safe so you can't question lockdowns or masks. Got to get rid of political violence, but we're only going to do it from the right. And by the way, I support the elimination of political violence, but I do think it should be supported in all uh, kinds of politics and from all sides of of the aisle uh, and, and from American political conversation and discourse. So notice how there's, there's just a complete lack of understanding of what will really happen, what we're facing when you have a, a government that's coming into power here that is almost messianic. I mean, it has a, a zeal to, to do things in your life. Say what you will about Trump, much of his governing philosophy, whatever you, however you want to describe it, uh, involved letting people do what they were going to do and he wasn't trying to get all up in everything that your life is, is about day in and day out. That's about to change. Your choices, your freedoms are going to be under assault in unprecedented ways from people who believe that even if they're not helping you, they're helping society. You see, they're assisting, they're advancing the collective. And so whatever whatever uh, downfall this this creates, whatever downside this creates for you is irrelevant. And they're going to be echoed by everything, everything you're seeing in the mainstream media, everything you're going to be seeing from Silicon Valley. I mean, if you wanted to create an authoritarian America, having Silicon Valley and 95 percent of the journalistic establishment and a a truly angry and emboldened Democrat Party, it's it is a concern. It's it's a worry because they're not saying this would be a perfect opportunity for Joe Biden and the Democrats to say, everybody, we are reconciling as a nation. The election is over. Joe Biden won. He will be president. Kamala Harris will be vice president. And we're going to be a good administration for all Americans. No, we're not purging We're not settling scores. We're not doing any of that stuff. And I I tell you this, it it, it would be a a lot of people would be very receptive to that message, including, I think, a lot a lot of people who are Republicans. They would say, "Okay," and and if they took those actions in good faith. Wow, wouldn't it be nice? I would rather actually live in an America where we can debate policy issues. But by and large, politics is much less a, a an obsession of individuals Where And it has to be for some folks because you've seen, I mean, they've the lockdown mentality has destroyed countless lives this year. And so politics, even if you didn't care about it before, it cares about you. So it's been unavoidable. I I would prefer us to go to a place where it's more of a of an intellectual and and curiosity hobby. Right. Oh, What's going on in politics today? Right before you check out the sports section or look at what uh, soap operas you're going to watch i don't know how many of you watch soap operas but you get the idea i think that would be a healthier place for us to be as a country where you know yes we, we have our politics but we have these other areas of of public life where we, we don't have to always be an r or a d or whatever else people are um but here's my my warning to all of us i don't think that's where we're heading at all i think Everything is going to be even more political because the people that think that Donald Trump was a fascist and that his they believe that his supporters have to also pay a price. And that price is not just losing the election, which is very, very disconcerting. And yeah, he lost. It's done. It's over. OK, it's finished. Uh, and that hurts to, to say for a lot of people, that's that makes them pretty depressed Uh, But that's not sufficient. In the eyes of the left, there has to be a whole other level here. They want a repudiation not only of Trump ideas, but of one's former support for this president. That's where this is all going. They want total and complete submission. And the acceptance of uh, our, our tech overlords and their view of what is acceptable speech uh, this is the the biggest threat to day-to-day individual freedom i've seen in america uh certainly since the the darkest days of 9/11 and and the the lockdown and crackdown afterwards on a whole host of activities and ideas um but with this one it's not that al- it's not that there's al-qaeda there's some external enemy the enemy that the democrats see is is internal and they're they're pushing this with An increase in domestic terror investigations and prosecutions referring to not just people that broke the law and stormed the Capitol and the rioters, but referring to anyone running around D.C. as a uh, a terrorist or terrorist in waiting. They're going to be very broad with how they apply these definitions, and they're going to be very ruthless with the way they try to exact revenge. So I want us all to be prepared for this. Uh, This is going to be a challenging time for those of us who do not agree with whatever the Biden-Harris agenda is going to be and who fight against the lockdowns, who fight against the digital tyranny that is upon us now. We We are on defense big time. And a lot of us got used to being on political offense for a few years, but the pendulum has swung far to the other side. Now, this is not a cause for despair. It's just a cause for looking at the reality and preparing for it, understanding who you trust, who you're alongside, and, and how we move forward together. And a big part of this is the battle over tech and over social media and and the Internet, which is the biggest advancement in human communication, uh, certainly since electricity. and And before that, you'd have to say the printing press, right? I mean, this is enormous and we cannot allow this to become dominated by one set of beliefs and and i believe that it'll really tear the country apart if that's allowed to continue or if that's allowed to continue on its current trend and with that i'm glad to see that there's the beginnings at least of a resistance and a pushback to the crackdown from facebook and others let's dive into that thanks for
0: listening to the buck sexton show podcast Get the latest news and information from Buck by heading to BuckSexton.com.
2: Well, we know this was organized online. We know that. Um, We, again, took down QAnon, Proud Boys, Stop This Deal. Anything that was talking about possible violence last week, our enforcement's never perfect. So I'm sure there were still
1: things on Facebook I think these events were largely organized
2: on platforms that don't have our abilities to stop hate and don't have our standards and don't have our transparency. But certainly to this day, we are working to find any single mention that might be meaning to this and making sure we get it down as quickly as possible.
1: This is just not true. That's the uh, Facebook COO, Sheryl Sandberg. When she says that this can't be done on Facebook, Or that this wasn't done on Facebook or that there there have not been violent riots planned and executed using platforms like Twitter and Facebook. That's just not accurate. I mean, you look back at news stories stretching back for years. There's been all kinds of horrible stuff, horrible stuff that has transited the the servers and and platforms and, and put on your screen from Facebook, from Twitter, from these because they're platforms. And they have this Section 230 protection that allows them to be platforms. But they are now acting as publishers because they're taking editorial lines and they're not uh, they're not applying standards without politicization. So they want to have it both ways. And that's the fundamental issue here. And they're getting away with it. They're getting away with it. When she says that the Capitol Hill riots were not organized on Facebook, That's a very, you know, that's a very interesting position for it to take. How would they how would they even know? And how quickly are they taking things off? You're really going to tell me that Facebook with its billions of users and and all the people that gathered together and and went to D.C. and anybody who was talking about criminal activity, they didn't they didn't use Facebook. It was all on Parler. That's the allegation. Uh, They better prove that one. I want to see the proof. Because I know that Facebook has been used to plan jihadist terror attacks. I mean, you look at these other platforms. There's all kinds of horrible stuff going on. But we, we, we don't hold the phone companies responsible for what any lunatic, you know, if, if, a, if a mafia boss calls in an assassination, you know, a hit on somebody using a phone. We, we don't blame the cell phone company. Oh, why didn't you? Why didn't you stop this? It's impossible to have perfect moderation. And that seems to be the standard that they're holding Parler to, where they pull down violent content or incendiary content. Maybe they're not as efficient as Facebook, but they haven't said, well, let's just increase your efficiency. You know, when you're talking about Amazon Web Services, AWS, pulling Parler off the Internet, it isn't, oh, we'll work with you so that you guys, we we can all agree on what the rules of the road here and you're going to enforce them. It's no, sorry, you're done. We, we think there's too much violent stuff on on your site. Twitter is full of horrible stuff, horrible stuff. They've got, uh, you know, Iranian politicians and and and, you know, Russian dictator. And, and they got all kinds of wacko, awful propaganda on there calling for genocide against human beings. I mean, the, the Chinese Communist Party can spew whatever nonsense they want on Twitter and they, they don't get any you know, pushback from these authorities. So we know that the standard is a let's crush conservative standard and it reminds me right now it reminds me a little bit of how conservatives were completely you know put on their back feet and and scared after the shooting uh uh, the shooting of i'm sorry the incident with george floyd it wasn't a shooting where where the knee was on his neck and his back and then blm riots happened and all of a sudden everybody was whoa uh, you know i Maybe maybe cops are racist and maybe we should do some big legislative effort here to to address this and new training, everything. I said, hold on a second. This is one incident. Let's look at all. We didn't have all the facts, as you know, we only saw half that video. The other half of the video was important, important to see. But people were scared. And the the left is they're very adept at this. They're very good. They go after people intentionally in bad faith on the right if they just wanted to purge the crazies a lot of people would sit around and say all right i mean you know q is a bunch of wackos i'm i you know i I don't even i don't even know what q believes i mean q is insane so i don't you know that's not my problem a lot of people sit around and say well what's the but no for them to really gain political power for for the left for the democrats to fully leverage what's going on They got to go after some people that they know are opposed to any kind of political violence that they know denounced immediately and would always going forward denounce a riot in the Capitol building. They got to get some of those people because that sends a message to everybody, to the vast majority of conservatives, to the ninety nine point nine percent of conservatives who would never raise their hand in anger against a police officer over a political issue. Uh, The left sends a message to all of them. We can get you too. you think just because you're ethical and honorable and and don't support political violence and don't support breaking laws because of, of, of election discontent that you're safe or that you'll be allowed to speak. No, no, friends. Authoritarians always have to make an example of the compliant as well as as well as those who disobey.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest news and information from Buck by heading to bucksexton.com.
3: Do you have any concerns that Congress will be distracted uh, if this trial goes forward instead of focusing on the cabinet and coronavirus?
2: Yes, I do have concerns. So does uh, Speaker Pelosi. Uh, Ms. McCung is a pretty good legislator, and he's doing what he thinks he needs to do to be disruptive of uh, President Biden. But I will say to Ms. McConnell, uh, Nancy Pelosi is smarter than that. Uh, We'll take the vote that we should take in the House, and she will make the determination as when is the best time to get that uh, vote and get the managers appointed and move that legislation uh, over to the Senate. It just so happens that if it didn't go over there, for 100 days, uh, it could be. let's give uh, President-elect uh, Biden uh, the 100 days he needs to get his agenda off uh, and running. And maybe we'll send uh, the articles uh, sometimes after that.
1: It's not even going to be done when Trump leaves. They're already the Democrats are already signaling this to you. Not not going to let this go. And, and I, I've I've read that. The attorney general, Bill Barr, had advised the president not to pardon himself. And I understand the legal rationale for that. And I'll say I I became worried about the president's about how the president was doing when when he started to turn on Bill Barr, uh, which, as you know, I would I would not do. And I did not I did not agree with that. And I became even more worried when turning on Mike Pence, who I, I think is has been an, an amazing uh, case study in somebody who has maintained his composure and his dignity and his decency through just a, a maelstrom. I don't mean just recently. I mean, for all four years, uh, all the attacks on the left and everything that put against Mike Pence. Let's not forget Mike Pence. Everything he's shown us so far is that he's a good man who's trying his best in a very difficult job. I believe the same thing is true of Attorney, attorney General Barr. Uh, and I said all along, maybe he didn't appoint a special counsel on Hunter Biden uh, because he would already looked at what was going on there and he didn't see he didn't see any federal crimes to investigate. It's possible, friends. I know this stuff does not get this doesn't get a lot of uh, a lot of clicks, a lot of love in conservative media. But I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth because I am your friend. I am your ally. I'm here with you. Shields high. And, you know, the the uh, continuation of the persecution of Trump, you can bet on that. That's going to happen. I mean, there you had uh, when we started this out, uh, Congressman Clyburn saying that they want to do this after the hundred days of Biden's agenda. I'm also going to tell you right now, be prepared for this. There was a lack because of some of the personnel decisions. There was a lack of focus and efficacy. When Trump came into office to pursue, I'm talking about the very beginning in 2017 after the inauguration, to pursue agenda items that needed to get done. You know, we did not have a repeal and replace of Obamacare. We did not get uh, we got 15 miles of, of new fence or wall at the border, hundreds of miles of upgraded fence or wall. But we needed more new wall. There were things that were left undone because there was a lack of focus. All we really got were tax cuts and deregulation, which is great. And I, and I praise them and I don't walk back from that at all I still think those were very good moves but understand that the Biden administration is going to undo all of that now and then some so what do I see happening here they're going to pursue as the Democrats do remember with Obamacare 20 uh starting 2009 going all the way through they're going to pursue with ruthless efficiency a a transformational agenda uh, that the, that the left approves of it won't be as radical, I think, as some of this stuff we're concerned about right now. Not yet, at least, because they're going to use this moment in time to uh, run up the scoreboard for sure. That's what's going to happen. And uh, they're they're also going to continue to go after Trump and they will not be satisfied until he and I and I believe his his family as well are in legal jeopardy. And also that his supporters, and when I mean supporters, I don't just mean his voters. I mean, there's 75 million Trump voters. I think it's going to be hard to, you know, to go after all of them. Uh, but I mean, the top people in his White House, they're, they're are, there's going to be ramifications for them from the left professionally once they, once they leave this White House. I think that's also very much going to be the case. So with all of that, I would say that there was one thing. Uh, that Jim Clyburn mentioned when he was going into his whole Donald Trump, how we're going to get Donald Trump and and wait the hundred days. And that is it, there needs to be a renewed national focus on just what exactly is going on here with coronavirus and what a complete debacle the vaccine rollout has been so far. And people who are trying to blame the federal government are delusional. It is not the federal government has delivered the vaccine at a five to one rate of the actual distribution of the vaccine. And the distribution has been left up to the states. That was the decision that was made. And remember this, Governor uh, Newsom in California, Governor Cuomo in New York, was saying that he wouldn't even distribute the vaccine until his own state health authorities had approved it. So he was taking not even just... the the right to determine who gets this and how quickly he was going a step beyond that to uh, taking this and and saying that he might delay it. That's the kind of power that he said he had. So it's it's up to the states and some states, West Virginia comes to mind. There are others have been really efficient at this. Others have been a disaster. Uh, It's going to be very difficult for us to talk about freedom as a general political issue when we do not have individual day-to-day freedom in our lives because of the response to COVID-19. We all need to understand that. We've got to get this country reopened. And a huge part of that, I've been telling this all along. you know, they, oh, you're anti-science, and this is what they always say when people question lockdowns. No, I, I think, I'm a big advocate for people who are at risk who are at, who are at high risk getting the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as possible. I want family members of mine who are at the age where they're in a risk category. You know, everybody in my family who's at who's at a high risk. I want them getting the vaccine. I'm trying to figure out how they can get it as soon as possible. But like a lot of other people across the country, all we see is more bureaucratic bullcrap and red tape and slowdowns. Why aren't we getting this? into the arms of people that it will save with with just incredible speed. That's what it should be. You know, it was warp speed to get this thing approved. It is not warp speed to get it distributed. And there are some pretty clear reasons as as to why. There are government officials who think that the most important thing is the equity of the distribution of this. They've taken a social justice approach to the distribution of a vaccine. And there's all these other considerations. Uh, Here's how this should be done. Every state should set up the resources to to put out information about where to go if you are 65 or over to get this vaccine quickly and safely. The end. I mean, that, that should be the focus. And the CDC has just updated its guides. I mean, the CDC has been abominable with so much of its guidance along the way here. Should schools stay open? Uh, you know, they didn't really know. And then a lot of schools shut down. Tell me why not why, why a single school in America should be closed at this point for COVID-19. What, what sense does that make when we know that it's a, a very minimal threat to children? It is a smaller threat. To, this is a fact. I, won't, I can't even be falsely fact checked by Facebook or any of these others on this one. It is less dangerous to children under the age of 12 than the flu on a per capita infectious basis. That's that's just true. That's a that's a, a fact. So why aren't why are our kindergartens and, you know, grammar schools across the country in some and a lot of schools are open, but in some places they're still closed or they're only doing, you know, partial openings, whatever it may be. Well, it's because everyone in the bureaucracy just wants to take the position of maximum safety and minimum risk in what they're saying. And that same approach to the vaccines distribution has meant that there are a lot of people who are waiting for this. This is costing lives. You know, they keep saying, oh, if only we masked up better. And, you know, we have people on uh, on Capitol Hill I've seen are saying, oh, Republicans refuse to wear a mask indoors with them. And so uh, th- and then there are a couple of members of Congress have tested positive, And one of them, there's photos of her in Congress indoors without a mask on. And, and this is always my point. If you wear a mask 90 percent or 99 percent of the time uh, and and taking photos and look at how much I mask up, you know, that that one minute period where you don't have your mask on, you might get infected. And so the rest of it doesn't the rest of the time with the mask doesn't matter. This is people don't seem to really understand. We're talking about this as a policy. The second you take that thing off, you have no protection now. So the fact that you were wearing it, that's why I get so angry about, oh, you got to wear a mask in a plane. Oh, you got to wear a mask in a restaurant. You have no protection. So it doesn't matter if you get infected and they'll say, well, but maybe it's less likely you'd get infected. I mean, if you're being exposed to covid, how much less likely they, they can't answer that question. But the point here being uh, that we have to demand accountability from government authorities and we're, we're going to be also pushing increasingly for red states to be taking a more active A more active role in the protection of of our rights and also to show more of our fellow Americans that places like Texas and Florida, which are governed by Republicans, are outperforming in every important metric, places like New York and California. You're going to see a big focus. And it's true on covid for sure. I think it's going to be true on everything, though. You're going to see a big focus on this in the months ahead. And, and also a continued outflow of anyone who doesn't want to live in a crazy blue state. Unfortunately, there'll be some Democrats that also then go and vote Democrat in in Texas or Florida. Uh, but that's that's going to be happening. And, and the vaccine changes something. The vaccine distribution changes something that we have to be looking at and advocating for very, uh, very closely.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get more from Buck by following him on social media at Buck Sexton on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
2: We must plan our economic resurgence. We simply cannot stay closed until the vaccine hits critical mass. The cost is too high. We will have nothing left to open. We must reopen the economy, but we must do it smartly and safely.
1: We will have nothing left to open. Who does that sound like? Who, those of you listening to the show, you say, wait a second. If we stay locked down through the whole winter, there'll be nothing left to open, at least for independently owned and small businesses. You know, Walmart will be fine. Starbucks will be fine. But for the millions and millions of people who don't own a Walmart or shares in it, for that matter, uh, what happens to them? Oh, you mean their livelihoods are ruined and they're bankrupted and their communities are devastated? I, I thought if you brought this up, you were putting a price on human life because that's what Cuomo used to say about this. But now, as we see, he, here's what's really happening. They have a very hard time showing people who are approaching this with an open mind. How is it that we have benefited exactly in large uh, in large urban centers? Right. So Los Angeles and New York City and how have we benefited from the most draconian lockdown stuff? It has it has been really effective. And that's a very hard case to make. I mean, what do we really think? Are our cases reduced? 20 percent month to month, 40 percent month, maybe. Is that is that the, the claim? Because Florida doesn't lock down and Florida is not 10 times the cases, five times the cases, double the cases. no. No, their businesses are open. There are some restrictions in place, but their businesses are open. So why are all restaurants in New York City and and Los Angeles shut down? What's the upside of this? Uh, Okay, they're not locked down in Miami. They're not locked down in in Tampa. And uh, this is why they're starting to say, well, you know, maybe we should start to think about reopening, even though we're not through the pandemic yet. Oh, Wow. You don't say. This is the Cuomo chorus. This is the Fauciites finally coming to the conclusion that I came to a long time ago, which is that you can't just have a a, a zero sum approach to this whole thing where you either go extreme lockdown or you want everyone to die. And you're a terrible person, which is which is the way they frame this issue. When when Trump was uh, making the initial decisions back in April and May. That's what they in March, April and May. That's what they were saying. You you either. Were in favor of these severe lockdowns or you're a bad person. There was there was no middle ground. And I trust me, I know because people were saying horrible things to me as if I wasn't a New York City resident with my entire family here. All of us in the in the epicenter of the initial covid outbreak in New York. Still the highest number of deaths per capita New York and New Jersey of any state in the country. As if I wasn't as concerned as anybody else about this. But I also was trying to think about what the policy trade-offs would be and looking at how much do we really gain from. Remember, lockdown is they, they act like what they're telling you is everyone stay home and everyone mask up 100 percent. And that's the benefit we're going to get from this. But that's not how it happens. You still have essential workers. You still have people going to medical appointments. You still have people going to the grocery store. You have people going to big box stores to go get a new TV. And uh, and so the virus continues to spread and you lock down things like restaurants in New York. They thought one percent of cases were happening in restaurants. One percent. So you're going to destroy the entire restaurant industry to 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 not even eradicate, but to slow one percent of cases. When you start to think this through, it just doesn't make sense. It always made sense to say if we have too many cases at once, we cannot treat people in the hospitals. There are more people will die as a result of that. So we have to slow them for hospital capacity. That was a fair point to make. That was an honest point to make. And that's why so many people went along with it. We have to this day not had a major hospital system in a U.S. city unable to give treatment to anyone with covid But that's still the framework that we're all using. It's either agree with me or people die in the emergency room without any without anyone able to even look at them, without anyone with uh, able to provide the medical attention. That's not the reality of what we're seeing to this day. And that's why there's finally, it seems, the beginnings of an opening to have a real conversation about this, the beginnings of of an opening that I hope we will uh, continue to push on. Even Governor Cuomo sang it.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast.
1: Harsanyi time, everybody. Our friend, back from a, a short stint of book writing. So we haven't had him on in the new year yet. Our friend David Harsanyi, back in the mix here. He is a senior writer at National Review. And he's going to have a great book to talk about at some point soon. But for right now, it's still getting written. David, great to have you.
3: Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: All right, man. We haven't had you weigh in on just the state of things right now. What what is what is top of mind for you in the political scene as we as we talk
3: today? Uh, um. Well, I, I am very concerned about. uh Just generally free speech issues. So for me, I am, you know, concerned about how Twitter and Google and Amazon are acting just in general. So that's a big topic for me. Obviously, I I am uh, concerned for the country in general, when you look at the anger and the violence that was generated last week, um, over the election, which I, you know, which I think was pretty horrible and uh, perpetuated by a mythology that the entire election was stolen. And uh, so I guess those are the two big things. And and then, you know, we haven't even really been able to really sort of get our minds around. At least I haven't. You know what the what a Biden administration means for us on a a number of issues. But I think obviously we'll have enough time for that. Let's
1: let's take some of these one by one. Let's let's start with the free speech issue. I've been talking a lot on the show about what it means for big tech censorship. And I do think that that particularly among conservatives and on, on the right, there there is a, you know, people say, oh, does it really matter? You know, Twitter does this or Facebook does that. Does it really matter now? And that, that had been the attitude. You know, people that work in media, we care a lot about it because it affects our ability to speak to our our readers and listeners. But I think the general public is getting an understanding now. No, this is. This is the entire Internet architecture that is being used to silence. This is if your business is selling products of any kind that, you know, who knows? I mean, you might be selling MAGA hats and all of a sudden Amazon decides uh, you're shut down and not just we won't sell your stuff. We'll take your website off the Internet.
3: Right. Or credit card companies say we're not going to sell, you know, we're not you can't use us to buy, you know, guns or, or whatever it is. So. It's very problematic. I, I struggle with it because I'm a big believer in, in the free market and a big believer in, in people being able to make choices in that market on their own. I do find it funny that the same people who are pro-individual mandate in Obamacare and want to force you to buy health insurance, who want to sue nuns to buy condoms, who want to uh, you know, involve themselves in essentially everything that's done by the... Um, by the free market. Sorry, that's my dog barking.
1: That's okay. Um, it's the world we're in now. We got to do hits from home. You get a dog. I love you know I love dogs, so I got no problem. Go ahead,
3: David. So in any event, so I find it funny that they pretend to care about, you know, these choices which I think they're just happy to be able to shut people up who they disagree with. So in my contention on this and my argument is, listen, there's a value behind the First Amendment and free expression. It's not just about the right. If Even if the right wasn't codified, even if it wasn't written down, we would still believe in the ideals of it. So when you're just so happy to shut down millions of people because they're saying something that you don't like, and I don't even like most of the time, I think that that's an a liberal attitude. And when that becomes normalized as it is now, this is even beyond like sort of the practical parts of it, when you chip away at that and people feel like it's fine to shut down millions of voices that they don't agree with, I think that bodes very poorly for the First Amendment moving forward as well.
1: And I'll just use this as an example. The term and because I've been speaking about this really for for all of Trump's presidency, the term white supremacy. I mean, I remember there was that Edward Norton movie, American History X, which I never actually really I saw pieces of it here and there on HBO and such. But, you know, there there are movies uh, or, 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 you know, when people talked about white supremacists in the 90s, the other 2000s, it immediately, you know, you had this image of a, a very bad person who was, of course, a, a racist, but also an anti-Semite and, you know, neo-Nazi, white supremacist, shaved head, swastika, tattoo guys. You know, th- this was what you would see in your mind with white supremacy. And everyone agreed these are bad guys. The term white supremacy now is used routinely by the left for, you know, I mean, if if you oppose, if you support the Asian American uh, uh, guy who sued Harvard for discriminating, people say, well, this is this is perpetuating white supremacy. It's like the term white So I I bring this up just because I feel like everyone needs to understand, even if they are saying they're only going to go after bad people. Uh, for 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 wrong think online or for for evil thing that is absolutely they're gonna they're gonna expand this so that they'll go after people who just oppose an idea and is com- and it's a completely legitimate opposition.
3: Yeah, I mean you make a very good point. People <clears throat> who want to shut down a bad voice and we say, if we give in and say, hey yeah, you know if we, if we treat free speech as not a neutral value but just simply, Something that protects good speech that never ends, as you mentioned, everyone's a white supremacist, right? I mean, anyone who who's you know behind a tax cut is a white supremacist because it's unfair or whatever it is. It's funny that you mentioned American History X. I'm probably getting this somewhat wrong but this that movie is a perfect example of how they do this there's a scene where he's at the table being all nazi like right he's saying you know i hate black people i hate jews and then all of a sudden he's like an affirmative action is terrible you know like so they fold in things that are reasonable to disagree with into the larger you know context of hatred and stuff like that you know oh you want to close the border um, you know the, the Nazi guy wants to close the border, so they're essentially saying anyone who wants to close the border is also a Nazi, or, or they, you know, they intimate that. So well, that's yeah, fine. You, see, you, know, I, you know, I told you
1: I hadn't I hadn't you. seen the movie. I just I don't want to cut you off. I want you to continue your point, but I just say, I mean, so so it's even even it's even apparent that tendency to take what is objectively an, and uh, objectively clearly wrong, immoral, evil, but then use that sort of universal moral revulsion to then start going after things that clearly aren't that, right? Like, like if you oppose tax cuts, but go ahead.
3: Yeah. It's like saying, I really, you know, making a, a, a creating a fictional character as a Nazi and then saying, I'm really for, you know, uh, uh, Medicare for all because, you know, you know, Germans had that kind of system long, you know, long before anyone. And, and, and Richard Spencer, or is it Richard Spencer? or I forgot whatever the Nazi guy's name is um you know is for it as well so then you must be for it so i mean it's just an expansive view of these things and it never ends and that's why you have to worry about speech like let me just say saying the people who are getting banned are saying that the election was stolen right um i disagree with them but that's a complete that's just a viewpoint it's not an inciting you know you're not inciting violence by having that viewpoint just because some people acted violently nancy pelosi still has
1: nancy pelosi still has a tweet (laughs) up david from 2017, right. saying our election was hijacked. That's the same thing as right. saying stolen, and it's still
3: up. There, there, there are there were people on CNN who essentially, and on MSNBC, who are no better than Lynn Wood or anyone else who had conspiracy theories that were just as bad. Now, do I want? elected officials to act better than the than the talk show person yeah i do but that but but still as far as speech goes they were saying the same thing i would ask any of these people do you believe that the 2016 election was or was not stolen or if the russians were involved and they're still in it they'll still tell you the russians were so i don't understand why they get i mean i do understand why they get to speak but obviously the standard's not the same
1: speaking of david Harsani, senior writer at national review and you can read his latest at nationalreview.com. david where do you think conservatism goes now? Uh, it feels very we, we, we're, we're uncertain. A lot of people are really worried and there doesn't seem to be any anything offering much in the way of of answers about you know wh- what the movement is. What do you think happens?
3: I, I don't know what the movement is. I mean, obviously, I have serious disagreements with many people on the right over, uh, you know, trade policy or policy with big tech and obviously there's going to be some big disagreements. But frankly every, you know people who think the Republican Party is finished or this or that I, I think they misjudge the situation. Um, I think what's going to happen is you'll have the Biden administration doing all kinds of things that conservatives hate as a collective and then that will unite them as it did unite the you know the left when Trump became president. So that's typically what happens because you have big consensuses on the right and left not a multi-party state, you know, meaning more than two that are always fighting. So I, I don't know that it's going to be all, you know, rosy and, and there'll be a friendship among all those folks. Um, I mean, I'm not a f- big fan of like Howley or or others, you know, who are more populist. But I think that in the end, you have if you have a common and I use the word, not, you know, a common enemy, but I don't mean it in the in the. War like sense. But if you have a common political opponent, you uh, you sort of rally around the trying to stop them.
1: And and on, on the big tech issue, a, a, that's one area where people keep saying, OK, well, what do we do? And I don't have a great answer other than everyone's got to understand what this really means. I, and and, you know, the the answer that I had been thinking of was, well, we'll build our own stuff but you got to go a whole lot deeper now we've seen to build your own stuff and actually have it withstand a left-wing purge.
3: Yeah. I used to say, you know, I get mocked for saying, build your own, you know, build your own institutions, build your own platform. I still think you can. Um, I mean, Parlor probably would have been somewhat successful on, on its own, even though I think I don't like the echo chamber aspect of it, but whatever, you know, it is what it is. But now you have, you know, sites purging, purging the ability of people to even have a site. And I don't know if you remember, a few months ago, uh, Google Ads threatened to shut down the Federalists because people were saying things in their comment section. You essentially are, are given this power to arbitrarily have rules and then pick and choose who you want to shut down. I mean, I've worked at a number of websites in my life, and policing a comment section is impossible, right? There's always going to be someone saying something. So you could just pick any of them and decide you want to shut them down and for any reason. I don't know how to deal with that. I, I think giving government more power and trying to, uh you know, empower government to decide what speech should look like or fair speech should look like. I think that's a dangerous turn as well. You see the people who are in government. I, I wouldn't I don't trust them with much. Certainly wouldn't want to trust them with uh deciding who gets free speech and who doesn't or more speech. So I'm with you. I don't have a solution for it. Um, also, explain this to me.
1: Section me. Section 230. Uh, of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, whatever it is, Section 230 gives people who run these kinds of, you know, Facebook and, uh, you know, all these big internet companies that that have a platform effect where you can write comments, as you said, it means that they're not liable for that. But Parler, according to Amazon, is being taken, has been taken off their servers because of what third parties were writing on Parler. So it's, that does seem highly arbitrary, doesn't it? I mean, if you, if the whole point is that there's supposed to be this legal protection, but then Amazon says, Oh, well, even though you got this legal protection, you're not doing a good enough job of moderating comments that you're not legally. You you, you see what I mean?
3: Yeah. They're acting like a, like a shadow government on most of the internet. Right. And they have these rules. Like I think it was Twitter, but I'm not exactly sure I might be wrong. That said that, you know, we're shutting this down for safety reasons. Now, obviously Guarding people from speech as a matter of safety is the oldest excuse for censorship. It's as old as censorship itself. But the idea that they have some kind of uh, we've created this, we've normalized the idea that they have some sort of responsibility to keep us safe from words, right? I mean, that's a dangerous that's a dangerous road to go down, I think. And you know people get mad at me, they say, like, um, at least on Twitter, you know you care more about the speech issue than the Capitol riot, you know, the insurrection, the armed the insurrection and coup and et cetera. Yeah, in some sense, I do. I think that that was a terrible and embarrassing moment in American history, but I don't think it has any long-term effect on how we live our life, unless of course Biden passes some kind of domestic terrorism act or some kind of, you know, intrusive thing like that. But the speech issue that is with us now. We've created new norms that are with us now, moving forward. It's, you know, the day after Trump gave them an excuse, they literally shut down half of conservative, you know, uh, interactions on social media, just like that. I mean, I've lost a lot of followers. I don't know what that's about, but, um, it's clearly some kind of coordinated and concerted effort.
1: And I also, I, I think that the, the way that the, the, the dragnet that they're going to be using here, so to speak, is going to take, there's so many people who I, you know, I, I remember even you know, for a while, it was like people were worried if they were looking at, you know, Al Qaeda statements to be terrorism researchers, And they and it turned out, yeah, some of them were getting uh, all all of a sudden they were popping up on some radars for people that are, you know, understanding the, you know, the Arabic uh, videos that would be released by Inspire and some of these groups uh, that that were meant to bring people to to jihadism. I mean, so at this point, if if you use hashtag stop the steal and you're mocking it, let's say, even are are people to believe that your Twitter account or whatever is going to be safe from? I don't think so. I mean, I think that they're just they're just nailing people all over the place and they don't care.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't understand why someone can't have the opinion that the election was stolen. It's not it's it's not, it's not even hate speech or anything. They think the election was stolen, just as most Democrats, 67% of Democrats, believed about 2016. So like, I, I don't even understand, I do understand. I mean, it's just a pretext to try to shut people up. And anyone, any journalist especially, which is what they do now most of the time who works to shut down the voices of people who is excited about shutting down people who they don't like are illiberal people they are not believers in the first amendment and just because they through a technicality can say uh, you know you don't have the right to say whatever you want you can't scream uh, fire in a theater and that kind of nonsense um in a crowded theater they are illiberal it doesn't matter that if it's legal or not, in my opinion, I don't know if that makes sense. I just know, I absolutely absolutely. There's <laughs> a
1: culture of the First Amendment, too. It's not just about the constitutional protection uh, from government interference in the law. So I, I completely agree with you. But uh, I've been saying this and a lot of journalists got, you know, journos got mad at me. The biggest the biggest advocates these days publicly of suppression of free speech are people who make a living based on the principle of free speech, which is journalists. And I, I think that that should be noted. I mean, there, there are a lot of the biggest censors are people who work at CNN and work at The New York Times. But we've got to leave it there for today. David Harsani, everybody, check out his latest at nationalreview.com. David, thanks so much.
3: Anytime. Thanks for having me.